0: Our Old Covenant reading this evening is from Psalm 73. Psalm 73, we'll be reading the entire psalm this evening. This is the word of the Lord. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Keep your finger with me here in Psalm 73, as that will be the primary portion of God's word for this evening's sermon. Turn with me to our new covenant reading in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, will be reading verses 1 through 11. This is the word of our God. that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Turn with me back to Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to his people. The the goodness of God is part of his nature, right? The, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, which is very familiar, I imagine, to most of us. Uh, Talking about who God is, what what are the attributes that it lists about God, one of those things is God's goodness. Yes, we confess God is good to Israel. But there are times in life, aren't there, when we are tempted to ask ourselves, is that really true? Is it really true that God is good to his people? We say it with our lips, you know, we, we confess it in our Shorter Catechism answers, it, it sort of rolls off the tongue very nicely with, with the rest of the Shorter Catechism. But what happens when we don't seem to experience that goodness in our lives? What happens when we go through an extended time of trouble that stretches on for years and years? You know, some of you young people may not really be able to imagine this, or you you may think, like, that's crazy, that doesn't really happen. But those who have lived a little bit longer will be very quick to tell you, yes, there are times of trouble in the lives of believers, and sometimes those troubled times can last for a while. And they just don't seem to go away. And this is actually one of the amazing things about the Psalms, right, is we learn not just how to praise God, but how to deal with the fact that sometimes we don't know how to praise God. They help us understand those times when we have doubts and questions. I think sometimes as believers, we're afraid to ask those questions. Like, well, I shouldn't really question the goodness of God. Well, that is true, but sometimes there will be doubts that will come into your mind. And the psalmist is not afraid to bring up those questions. God is good to Israel, but what happens when we don't see it. How do we deal with that? See, the psalmist is going through a time of trouble in his life, but the problem is that he is fa- what he is facing isn't just his own trouble. He's also facing the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. He's asking himself, why do bad things happen to good people... And why do good things happen to bad people? Like, that's not supposed to work that way. If God is good to his people, why do we suffer? And if God is good to his people, why do the wicked prosper? We confess and we believe in the goodness of God, but when doubts and temptations make us question this truth, the thing we need to realize is we haven't learned this truth well enough. We need to look at it again. We need to come with the psalmist here and understand what it means that God is good to his people. The psalmist comes face to face with doubts that make him question the goodness of God. And he is led by the grace of God to understand that God truly is good. Now, looking at this psalm together, we'll see there are three movements to this psalm. And so I want to break, I want to break it down into those three movements. First, there is the conflict. Second, there is the turning point, And third, there is the resolution. There is a conflict, there is a turning point, and there is a resolution. And So as we ask this question to ourselves, what do we do when we don't see the goodness of God? How do we affirm what we confess? How do we experience what we confess? Let's look at the psalm together in these three movements. First, there is the conflict in verses 2 through 12. Now, the psalmist starts out here in verse 1 with a confession of God's goodness. We've already noted this, but let's notice it again. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, the pure in heart are those who have believed in God by faith. They are those who are fully committed to God and His Word. They aren't double-minded, right, like we heard this morning in James chapter 4. These are not the double-minded people. They are single-minded single-mindedly pursuing the worship of God. They are believers. I think it's actually interesting because it shows us that even single-minded believers need to learn this truth. In other words, single-minded believers aren't out of danger when it comes to questioning the goodness of God. Single-minded believers can lose sight of this. The psalmist is saying, this is the truth. People of God, listen to me. This is the truth. God is good to his people, but let me tell you about the time I lost sight of that truth. Let me tell you about the time that I questioned that truth. Look with me here again at verses 2 through 3. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, what he's experiencing here is a crisis of faith. And the reason is because he has become envious of the wicked. You know, we won't read verses 4 and following. Um, he, he's just sort of reiterating again and again, this is who the wicked, wicked people are. But essentially, they, are, they seem to prosper, and they don't seem to have trouble in this life. The word for prosperity that the psalmist uses here when he says in verse 3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, it's, it's the Hebrew word shalom. It's actually a pretty familiar word to many of us. You know, it's often used for peace. Uh, it can have a little bit broader of a range than that, but I think we recognize that. You know, it's like a greeting. Shalom, peace. The idea of this psalm is that things seem Backwards. See, it's the righteous who should experience shalom, not the wicked. But what does the psalmist see in verses 4 and following? The wicked are healthy, they are wealthy and prosperous, they are prideful, they rebel and they speak out defiantly against God. They think that God does not see their ways, that he isn't going to do anything about their sin. And the psalmist is saying, like, I want shalom, why do they get it? These people don't follow God and yet they have prosperity. Is it really worth it to follow God if I can seemingly live any way that I, that I want to and experience that kind of shalom? That's the question that's in his mind. Why have I spent all this time following after God? And I don't have shalom and yet those people do. Now, if you happen to be reading a translation different than the ESV, uh, you may have noticed that verse 10 looks a lot different. Um, I'm tempted to pass over verse 10 because it's, it's a little bit funky, and uh, most commentators don't quite know what to do with it. Um, but it is a little strange, and it comes up different in different translations. So uh, the ESV says, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Uh, But if you're reading a different translation, I'll just quote to you the New King James version. It says something like this. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. Uh, The reality is the Hebrew is just difficult. So it's hard to know exactly what the psalmist is driving at. But I think I'm going to go here with John Calvin's explanation. It was the best explanation that I found. And he says this. Many who had been regarded as belonging to the people of God were carried away by this temptation. That is to pursue after the shalom that the, that the wicked seem to have. Right? Many who had been regarded as belonging to the people of God were carried away by this temptation and were even shipwrecked and swallowed up by it. I think that's actually a pretty good explanation of what seems to be going on here in verse 10. In other words, the prosperity of the wicked has led professing believers away from the faith. They've seen the prosperity of the wicked and they they've questioned the goodness of God, and it, it even seems to have drawn away some who would claim that they were followers of God. Well, we come to verse twelve here, and it's it's a summary statement of the previous verses. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease they increase in riches. That can be kind of hard to swallow. Right? If God is on his throne, why do the wicked have shalom and the righteous suffer? Now, see, what's happening here is that the psalmist, at, at this point right in his thinking, not as he begins to understand the, the reality, which we'll come to, but at this particular point in his thinking, he was judging the order of the world merely by what he could see with his eyes. He was judging God by what he could see and experience, what was tangible to him. But that's not the eyes of faith. The psalmist is a true child of God, yet he was in danger of losing sight of the goodness of God. He was in danger of sliding down the path towards sin. See, that can happen to any one of us. We are constantly bombarded by what we see in the world around us. We are constantly bombarded by what we can observe, what we can touch and feel. We know what the Bible says about God. We know what the Confession and the Catechism say, and we have it memorized. But what happens when we look at the world around us, and it doesn't appear to match up with what the Bible says? Like our experience, our experience of reality doesn't seem to line up with what we believe to be true of God. The wicked sin and rebel against God and nothing happens to them. And and the thing is, is that slowly and sometimes subconsciously, what we believe about God begins to be eroded. Our eyes of faith begin to grow a little bit dim. We tell ourselves, right, don't we? We tell ourselves nothing's going to shake my faith, but the devil will try to slowly undermine your faith. He's not going to present you with like a really massive problem like choose this or deny the faith because he knows you're not going to do that. But he is going to try to undermine your faith to begin to make you question the goodness of God. And as we do that, sinful habits and practices and ways of thinking begin to creep into our lives. We, we, we watch the world around us and we observe what we see out there and that begins to affect us, the way that we think, the way that we act. Nothing bad happens to these people when they do these sins. In fact, things seem to be going pretty well for them. Maybe these sins aren't really such a big deal after all. Like my mom and dad told me it was bad, but how do I really know that? Everyone else is doing it and it's fine. We spend our days around people who are angry and boastful and prideful and covetous and lustful. And nothing happens to them. And what that does is it leads to us to question the goodness of God. Isn't that the same lie, though, that Satan Satan told Adam and Eve back in the garden? Has God really said, Adam, Eve, is it really true? Is that really going to happen to you? You And we come out of our day and we go back home and we bring these sins with us. We bring anger and lust and pride because we've begun to slip into thinking that we aren't as bad as other people and so it's okay you know maybe seeing the prosperity of the wicked doesn't lead you toward following their particular sins you know maybe you're like okay well i don't do that i mean i work with unbelievers and yes they're they're kind of off the wall but it does i'm not going down the path of their sins but maybe seeing the prosperity of the wicked leads you toward anger Do you get angry when you look at the world around you? I mean, like, things are going kind of bad, right? Uh, One party wins the presidential election, and it makes you angry. Like, that wasn't supposed to happen. One party pushes through certain legislation, and it makes you angry. And, like, what happens is is we, we begin to become dependent on what Congress or the Supreme Court is doing, and we're so caught up in that that we either get happy or angry depending on how things go with that. Wickedness seems to spread unchecked and it makes us angry. And if we aren't careful, that anger can lead us, almost without realizing it, to question the goodness of God. See, the thing is, it's a mistake to think that the prosperity of the wicked won't affect you. When you look out at the world around you, you think, well, it doesn't really matter what the world is doing. No, the reality is, is when you see the prosperity of the wicked, it's going to impact the way that you think and the way that you act. It does affect us. It does lead us consciously or unconsciously to question the goodness of God. It does lead us towards sin. And so the the application here of seeing what the psalmist went through is for us to realize we need to be on our guard. We need to guard against that kind of sin. We need to know, yes, the wicked will prosper, but I don't have to follow their sins. I don't have to become angry and resentful toward God because of what the wicked are doing. So what is the solution to that? What is the solution to questioning the goodness of God? Well, we actually see that in the verses that follow. We see that in the turning point of this psalm. First, there was the conflict. Second, there is the turning point in verses 13 through 17. Read with me, if you would, verses 13 through 15. The psalmist writes this. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And because he sees the prosperity of the wicked, the psalmist feels like he has followed God in vain. He's not experienced prosperity like the wicked. In fact, he's had quite the opposite happen to him. He has experienced continual trouble. And he's slipping into thinking that following and obeying God is a waste of time. He's fallen into looking for what he can get out of this life from following God. When he didn't get what he wanted, he became angry. That's actually pretty strong selfishness right there. God, if I follow you, you gotta, you know, you gotta like, I did my part, God, now it's your turn. You gotta you gotta pitch back into me some of what I was putting out to you. In the face of trouble and suffering, it is possible for believers to become so doubtful that they think that their faith in God is vain. Where where is the concrete manifestations of God's goodness, right? Like I've confessed that God is good, I followed God, I walked in obedience to him. But the wicked prosper and I suffer. Where is this thing called the goodness of God? Why do I seem to be the object of God's discipline and displeasure? And the thing is, that way of thinking, the logical conclusion of it, is that God is unjust. That is what the psalmist is sliding toward. He's he's getting very close to saying with his lips, God is unjust. I followed him and and I've obeyed him and he's only done me harm. It's really interesting what happens, though. At this point, he stops himself. He's getting ready to to get to that logical conclusion, and he stops. And he won't go around saying this out loud. He refuses to speak in a way that betrays his faith, in a way that betrays the community of faith. And see, the turning point of the conflict begins when he recognizes that his complaint doesn't line up with the faith of the community of believers. That's what he says in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here's the thing. When doubts threaten to undermine our faith, look to the community of believers around you. Look to the people of faith who have gone before you. Look to those who have suffered and yet remained faithful. And realize you aren't alone. You aren't isolated. See, that's the problem. When we go through suffering, it can be very isolating. And it can make us feel, well, like God is picking on me. But look around you. Look to your brothers and sisters in Christ here. But look outside. Look outside to the broader church, to the saints of the past, and realize they have suffered too, and yet they have remained faithful. They have something to teach us. They have something to teach us about faithfulness To God, they have something to teach us about the goodness of God, even in the place of trouble and suffering. Look with me here at verses 16 and 17. The psalmist says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It can be very difficult to understand the providence of God. I mean, that's what the psalmist is saying here in verse 16. He tried to think about it and it was hard. It's it's complicated, right? The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer, but God is still good. How, How does that work? Like, it's hard to understand. But notice the psalmist only comes to the place of understanding. He understands his own... Circumstances, He understands the apparent prosperity of the wicked when he returns to the worship of God. It is in the place of worship that things begin to become clear. That he sees here in the place of worship that the whole point of our existence is life lived in fellowship with God. Life dwelling in his presence. The true end of the righteous is eternal living in the presence of God, and the true end of the wicked is eternal destruction away from the presence of God. We won't come to a true understanding of the goodness of God while our gaze is fixed on this world. That's actually kind of hard to do because, like, we live in this world, right? It's what we're confronted with every day. That's what we're bombarded with. The psalmist is saying, look, you've got, you've got to actually look away from this sin-cursed world and you've got to look to God himself. This world isn't all that there is. Yes, there is evil and wickedness here because man brought that into the world by his sin and rebellion against God. Yes, there is suffering and there is trouble, but man brought that too. See, it's not surprising that we see wickedness. It's not surprising that we experience trouble, but it is surprising that in the midst of all this, God graces us with his presence. Is God really good? What is the answer to that question? Brothers and sisters, the answer is the gospel. Jesus Christ came into this sin-cursed world. He came to sinners and rebels. He entered into our brokenness, and the purpose was to lead us back into the presence of God, to live and to dwell as children and friends of the one whom we had betrayed and rebelled against. As the psalmist comes into the presence of God, he realizes God cannot be anything other than good. If he has drawn me into his presence, he is good. Yeah, I may not understand it all the time, I may not always see it, but God dwelling with his people in Christ by the Spirit can mean only one thing. Truly, God is good. To Israel. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The presence of God came to dwell with His people in the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, and Christ has sent His Spirit into our hearts. You remember the story in Acts when the Spirit descends on the apostles, what happens? It's flames of fire. It represents the glory. What dwelt above the tabernacle? It was the pillar of fire and cloud. And what comes to settle on the people of God? It is the very presence of God. Dwelling not just with, but in his people. By the Spirit, God himself is with us. See, when we fix our gaze on the prosperity of the wicked... That will lead us toward sin. It will lead us toward envy, toward wanting the apparent shalom that the wicked have. The antidote to that is to gaze on Jesus Christ. That's the start to understanding that God is indeed good to his people, is to understand that God dwells with us, right? That's the turning point. But we still have to deal with the fact that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. We believe that God is good. We see in Christ that God is good. But how does this apparent contradiction that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, how does that contradiction get resolved? We see that here in the resolution. There was the conflict, the turning point, and now the resolution in verses 18 through 28. See, in the conflict... It appeared that the wicked were prospering while the righteous suffered. But the resolution shows us what's really going on. The resolution reverses the conflict. The conflict dealt with the plight of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked, but the resolution turns that around and deals with the plight of the wicked and the prosperity of the righteous. Look with me here at verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In the conflict back in verse 2, it was the people of God who felt that their feet were slipping but here in the resolution it is the wicked who are actually in danger of slipping at any moment. See it's been reversed. The wicked seem to prosper but really they stand in constant danger because God is against them. Their situation is uncertain and unstable. God is the one who will bring them to ruin in this life or the next. And notice how the psalmist describes them, right? They disappear and are forgotten as quickly as a dream when you wake up. I mean, like we all experience this, you know, you have like a really bad dream or sometimes it's a really good dream, you know, and you wake up and it's gone. And when it was a bad dream, you're like, oh, phew, I didn't want to remember that one. When it's a good dream, you're kind of like, you sit there and you're trying to remember it and it just like, it slips away. It's gone. It's never coming back. You'll never remember it again. That's what the wicked are like. God says to the wicked, I never knew you. Think about how terrifying those words actually are. The wicked come before God and he simply says to them, I never knew you. And it's because of this that Proverbs 24 says this, fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Yes, the wicked prosper in this life sometimes, but they live in the worst place possibly imaginable. Under the wrath of God. Hanging as it were by a thread over the very pit of hell. As Jonathan Edwards so famously described it. Actually ought to warn us not to be envious of the wicked. And ought to warn us not to be those who are like the wicked. Like You don't want to go there. That is a terrifying place to be. Rejected by God. Destined for utter destruction. But look here at the, what happens to the righteous in verses 21 and following. The psalmist says this, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist confesses here that he has misjudged God. That he has questioned God the goodness of God. And now he realizes how, how foolish he was. Now he fixes his gaze firmly on God. God has never left him. God never leaves his people, and he never allows them to be overcome by their sin. He walks with us and sustains us, holding us by the hand to keep us from falling. You know, think about uh, thinking about when, uh, when a toddler learns to walk, you know, We've had some toddlers here in our church, and it's kind of fun watching them learn to walk. Uh, we're going to have some toddlers again soon in the coming months, and that'll be kind of fun, you know. But, like, you, you remember those times when you walk around with a toddler, you know, you hold them by the hand. And they can't even really walk, but, but like, they're not worried. They're not going to fall. They're being held by the hand. of Someone they love and they trust. God leads us by the hand until we reach our eternal destiny, until we reach glory with him. See, this is what God is in the business of doing. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, God is in the business of leading his people to glory. There's nothing in heaven or on earth more to be desired than God, more to be desired than the presence of God. He is our portion in this life and the next. Maybe you ask yourself that sometime. Like, what is my place in this world? Where's my portion? Like, you know, I want a portion too, God. God is our portion. We may not get earthly prosperity, but we possess God himself. What more could we ask for? It is only when we see our weakness and our frailty and our neediness that we seek strength and refuge in God. psalmist concludes here in verses 27 and 28, which serves really as a summary of the whole. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. See, verse 27, this is the real end of the wicked. The psalmist started off by envying the wicked by desiring to be like them but when he gets to this point he sees what really happens and he sort of is like no I I don't envy the wicked anymore when you see the end of the wicked would would you really want to be like that if everything in life went well for you just like just stop and imagine this for a minute I mean everything in life went well for you Perfect health, perfect job, perfect house, everything you ever wanted. If if you got everything your heart could ever desire, but you lived separated from God, that is the most horrifying existence that anyone could ever imagine. This psalm is framed by a statement of true faith. Verse 1, the psalmist declares, truly God is good to Israel. And as he comes to verse 28, he says it again. But for me, it is good to be near God. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing we could possibly want or desire or imagine or wish for than that. That God is good and that we in Christ have been brought near to him. Everything in life could go wrong. But if this one thing is true of you, if if God has drawn near to you in Jesus Christ, you can truly say it is well with my soul. See, the situation of the psalm hasn't changed, right? Nothing has really changed as far as circumstances go. We get to the end of the psalm, the wicked are still prospering, the righteous are still suffering. We groan inwardly as we wait for our final redemption. But something has changed. The perspective of the righteous has changed. God is with us. And the glory that we have received in Christ and will receive far outweighs the suffering we could experience or we ever will experience in this life. What does all this mean for us? Yes, there will be times when it is hard to see the goodness of God. Yes, there will be times when the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer. But the coming of Jesus Christ into this world and his presence with us by the Spirit proves to us that God is good. It's when we fix our gaze on Christ that we see that God is good. And and there are lots of things that can draw us away from this. The evil that is spreading like wildfire in our culture, the cares and the worries of this life, the sins that so easily trip us off. There are just many ways we can be drawn away from seeing the goodness of Christ. But we must remember that there is an end for the wicked. And there is an end for the righteous. This world is not our home. We have a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. God himself is our portion and inheritance in this life and in the life to come. See, if we give our affections, even just a portion of our affections, to things other than God, We put ourselves in danger of losing sight of the goodness of God. And so we need to be constantly refocusing our affections on God, spending time in adoration and praise and thanksgiving and confession. Each and every day, child of God, praise him for his glorious attributes and gracious love toward you. Each day, be specific in your prayers. Meditate on what God has done for you today Like, actually stop and think, what has God done for me today? What what do I have that I can praise him for? And here's the thing, if you do that every day, you will never lack a day to praise God for what he has done for you. Give thanks for specific blessings and provisions. You know, thank God each day for your daily bread. And when God does provide your daily bread, give thanks to him. When God displays his goodness to you, whether, no matter how big or how small it may be, give thanks to him. And notice how the psalm ends. Tell others about it as well. Do you ever wonder how to be a better witness to the world? Look at how the psalm ends. When your affections are fixed on God, when you are drawn to the reality that you live in the presence of God today, right now, and will dwell with him forever and all eternity, when you are convinced that he is good to you in Jesus Christ, you won't be able to stop telling people about Christ, about the God who saved you and loves you. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul, because truly God is good to Israel. Amen.